As winter came to an end and the sun warmed New York, people saw a light at the end of the tunnel in the coronavirus pandemic. And the focus turned to what comes next. People are desperate. New Yorkers are thrilled to get outside and get back into the city and get back into living. The agenda has to be to unite New York, to get through this difficult time, to support the people who have been most damaged during the crisis. Throughout the New York Gritty podcast series, we looked at the challenges people were facing, how they got through this extremely difficult crisis, the changes that have taken place in their corners of the Big Apple, and the outlook for the future. Whether they were musicians, restaurant owners, Broadway performers, taxi drivers, hotel owners, or people in the tourism industry, they all shared one thing in common, an unshakable belief that New York will bounce back from this trauma and be a better place when it's all said and done. In our first season's finale, we look at New York's past to figure out how this city will shape its new beginning. I'm Steve Kastenbaum, and this is New York Gritty podcast about the resiliency of New Yorkers in a time of crisis. I think the issue we should be talking about now instead of what's going to happen is what do we want to have happen? That's the conversation we need to have instead of trying to predict like Swami what the next thing is going to be. Let's help figure it out. My name is Thomas Dijem. I'm the author of New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. Uh, I've moved to New York in 1980, so uh, the 35 or 40 years covered in this book are most of my adult life, uh, and I spent eight years working on it up until uh, 2021. I have to say, as a native Brooklynite, I love the book, but I started with the epilogue because (laughs) my wife suggested I do that for this podcast because you talk about the current uh, times and in that epilogue, and and we think it's right up there with all the greats, including. uh, you know, the Power Broker and all the other great books that chronicle the history of New York. It's definitely a must read. High praise indeed. Thank you. I mean, the epilogue was the last thing I wrote, not surprisingly. Working on the book for eight years, uh, it had a life of very much its own in a lot of ways. And, you know, it was very late and time sort of led us to a moment when the the discourse really um, was ready to talk about change and the kind of change that I really got to. But um, I'd really intended on just going up until Bloomberg, um, mm. but things happened so fast in the last year that my editor really felt it necessary to do the epilogue, and I'm really glad that we did. I mean, I think it really helped me come to the real rationale uh, rather than just sort of are the argument of the book that we need to look in more granular ways at how we lived and what policies really worked and what didn't. Um, but it did help me kind of bring the book into daily life in a way. And, and it, mm-hmm. it, it helped me pull out what I wanted people to take out in a, in a much more direct fashion. Explain your book and, and sure. how it looks at New York and, and I think why it's a must read for, for people who want to understand New York, how it works, how it got to where it is. It's a look at the city from Koch to Bloomberg, basically from the fiscal crisis to you know, 2013. So that's 78 till 2013 or so, the end of Bloomberg. And over the course of those 35, 40 years, I would say the city went through three evolutions. You know, there are many who say that this period was a great triumph for the city. And some say, oh, it was a huge failure. But having lived here all that time, I know that it was so much more complicated. There were things that were tremendous. There were people and ideas and events that really 
pulled the city out of that pit that was that it was in. Um, but there were also huge mistakes made um, that are very evident now and were made even more evident by the pandemic. So I wanted to really dig deep and rather than argue one side or demonize any particular people or ideas, I wanted to go back and see really how the city changed. You start the book in the 1970s yep. when New York City was facing its worst crisis since the Great Depression. And since then, you and I have lived through many other crises. We right. lived through the, the 80s and, and early 90s, the, the crime wave that swept over this city. Uh, we lived through, of course, 9-11 uh, and the Great Recession. Uh, right. You know, we're looking at, I guess, and I'll, I'll jump on your question here, but this is a horrible and unique moment that we're in. But one of the things that's very clear in this book is that we have, New York has repeatedly faced enormous crises and we have pulled out of them. We have found ways that the city does get its act together and the people of New York pull together and, and make changes in the city, not just in City Hall, not just on Wall Street and kind of corporate boardrooms, but people in neighborhoods, people in communities have had, I think, across the board had a, a very big role in pulling the city out of the, the various pits it's been in. How does this crisis compare to what we went through in the 1970s when the city was essentially bankrupt? It, you know, it was bankrupt. And I think the difference um, is almost in, and it is one of the benefits of what has happened over these 40 years, is that I think the city, the people in the city were, I think, kind of actively fighting against it. I mean, I would just remember you grew up here, um, but I remember moving here and just feeling that, you know, every day was kind of a matter of survival. There really was a contest between New York and the New Yorkers who lived in it to see who would win, basically. Every day was kind of an accomplishment in that way. And I think over this time, the sense of living together, the, the kind of sense of regaining public space as a place rather than a kind of free-for-all, but as a, a kind of cauldron where we could begin to recreate what I, you know, what Adam Gopnik calls commonplace civilization, this idea that we're in this city together. How can we use it and be in it together? Can we have shared um, expectations of behaviors, things like that, that? How do we live together in the city? And I think over these years, we got a lot better at living together in the city. And so we are starting um, from this, you know, from the pandemic in a city where people are, I think, basically do want to live together. I think the deepest frustration of the pandemic is that unlike 9-11, when we could run around and hug our neighbors, and God knows we did a lot, um, we're not able to do that. We're separated from each other. And that's been the most it's if you were writing a science fiction story, this would be the kind of thing you would do to pack people together, but not let them commiserate with each other and grieve together, which is what we most needed to do. So that's a unique part of it that I think once we're able to, as we're starting to get back together, I think there's going to be a remarkable amount of energy that's going to push us forward. That's not just financial capital, but kind of social capital. New York City is going to enter a, a new period. We're going to have a new mayor in 2022. Yep. What can that administration learn from Koch, Giuliani, Bloomberg, uh, as they try to take New York City out of this current fiscal crisis? 
I think I think about housing first. All of these crisis cycles, um, in some way or another, getting out of them had something to do with housing, and and I think that speaks to supporting the bottom, you know, the the kind of grassroots, the communities, the streets, the people of New York, as much as we talk about the business world and the real estate world. Um, you know, I hear a lot about. We're afraid of taxing because then the rich are going to leave and corporations are going to leave. And, you know, we've tried this. Every crisis since Koch has been trying to serve that part of, of the city. And do we have to take them into account? Absolutely. They are part of the city. And I, there's no way we should be talking about anything that, that is, quote, driving them out. But at the same time, we have to see that the immigrants who came to this city, something like 1.5 million over these 35 years, come and stay here. Um, and they are the ones who are people who are most responsible for shoring up the boroughs, for really buying the real estate, building the small businesses that keep the broader economy of the city going. So going forward, I hope in this next evolution of the city, those communities are really seen as partners in what happens, that we don't constantly make decisions based on what's going to be best for big business and it'll trickle down to us. It's not going to happen. Let's take them into account. Let's help them grow, but let's really put the people of the city up front um, and let them grow upwards and meet that. That, I think, is what a healthy city is about. One of the things you talk about in your book is that for many decades, City Hall was not a place where good management was fostered where it was expected even. Right. Uh, and then that changed gradually. You know, one, of the, one of the big uh, changes of the financial crisis, of the fiscal crisis in the 70s, was that the city was really poorly run. Um, and you know, there were people who worked enormously hard. I talked to a lot of them, people who, who worked under Lindsay, who were incredibly hard workers, but the sense of, of of drive, of administration, of getting the thing done, um, that was that was kind of hands were thrown up. And so people like John Zuccotti came in and who was a deputy mayor, um, who was almost a shadow mayor for a while under Beam, who insisted on pulling in management um, practices into the city in a way that they hadn't existed before. Lindsay had tried it to a certain degree, but there was now an insistence that this had to be part of the city's financial recovery was that the city would be run more like a business and not to produce profits, but to have regular meetings, you know, have reports, have expectations, produce data, produce measurables that you could see whether things were getting better. There's something called the mayor's management report that was forced to come into existence um, uh, during the fiscal crisis, which was a real tool to me. I mean, I, I read every one of them over this time that has data on um, just yearly changes on service delivery of all kinds of, of everything basically the city delivered. And so we started to look at measurables. A lot of that started under Koch, and that was part of his mandate was to get the city thinking um, much more professionally and administer it professionally, bring in technology to make the budget auditable. Up until that point, you had no idea where the money was going. Things were written on the backs of envelopes. It was kind of loosey-goosey. And so that really started under Koch. Giuliani was efficient and his eight o'clock leadership meeting was a brilliant thing to do. Uh, and the kind of introduction of CompStat coming out of the police department, which was a much more aggressive use of data 
um, that frankly had been going on before. You know, the sanitation department was producing maps of hotspots in the 80s. Um, the police department was just so far behind on changing its computer systems and using data that it looked like it was a groundbreaker. But eventually that idea was much more applied during Giuliani to, to look at data more, to kind of look at, at deliverables more for the city. Um, and then in Bloomberg, it goes to a whole other level, you know, and I think the quality of people he brought in originally um, in the face of 9-11 was as uh, uh, good. They were a lot of Koch people came back, but also new business people who I think had and experts um, kind of from the world of academe who really did have high expectations for the city and also for themselves and what was produced. And I think you had a mayor who respected, who respected expertise in a way that, say, de Blasio never has. It's a complicated set of problems that um, are very hard for the city and state to deal with when they all their resources have been focused for the last 14 months on the COVID-19 health issues. I'm Catherine Wild. I'm the president and CEO of the Partnership for New York City. The Partnership is the city's business leadership organization. It is uh, CEOs of businesses across all industry sectors who are committed to working for the healthy and strong economic revitalization of the city. How long have you been involved with the partnership? I came to the partnership as a volunteer in 1981, right when it was getting started under David Rockefeller's leadership. So you've been through a lot of crises and changes and evolutions in New York City during that time. You've, you've seen it all. <laughs> I have indeed. And in fact, I came to the city in 68. So I, I also lived through the urban crises of the 1970s when the neighborhoods were burning down, when we lost half our Fortune 500 companies, and uh, the city was really in deep, deep trouble. You talked about how this organization uh, was founded by David Rockefeller. That's a good jumping off point because Rockefeller played a critical role in helping New York navigate through the fiscal crisis of the 70s. Can you give a little background on that? Uh, Rockefeller and the was the head of Chase Manhattan Bank at that time. And it was the bankers, David Rockefeller, Walter Riston and others, who partnered with uh, Felix Rowton, who was an investment banker and organized labor, Victor Gottbaum, and the leadership of the city's municipal unions to figure out how to finance or refinance the city at, at a time when there was no money and they couldn't, the city couldn't meet payroll and was on the verge of bankruptcy. So um, that was a, a key set of relationships and that was a time when the bankers and the labor leaders actually liked each other and worked together to get us out of a crisis. And I think we need that same kind of collaboration again. And we had leadership from uh, the governor then, uh, Governor Hugh Carey, who was um, had been my congressman in, in Brooklyn and was a terrific guy. And it all, uh, it all came together and they were able to work things out but it took many, many years for the city to get to the point we were in 2019, where we had a really rebuilt the economy. We had the, the most jobs, 4.7 4. million jobs. We had 
8.4 million population, we were larger and stronger than we'd ever been in December 2019. There really is a direct line that can be drawn from the recovery in the 1970s when when New York City was essentially bankrupt to where we were pre-pandemic. But we had a lot of ups and downs between those two periods. And there have been a lot of comparisons between the current crisis and other issues the city has faced, whether it was 9-11, whether it was uh, Hurricane Sandy, or the financial crisis that led to the Great Recession and a record number of unemployed people in New York at the time. But in my mind, the closest comparison, given how much the economy shrank in such a short period of time, the fiscal crisis comparison, I think, can be best compared to, to the 1970s. Am I wrong in that no, analysis? No, I, I, I totally agree with you. The others were limited both in terms of their geography with respect to 9-11 and their fiscal impact. I mean, the, the total impact of each of those crises, it was large, but it was manageable. And in each case, we were able to quickly secure federal funding and develop a plan for recovery. I, I also, as you were listing the, the crises starting with 9-11, recovery from each of those crises was led by Mayor Bloomberg, which is interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, but he had three big crises on his watch. The analogy to the, to the 1970s is the right one because uh, and and it's and it's instructive because we, the 1970s crisis was really about the loss of manufacturing in America and the collapse of the industrial waterfront, which had driven the economy up until 1970 of New York City. It was our industrial waterfront, our manufacturing base. We had American Can, American Machine and Foundry, Bethlehem Steel, uh, the uh, Revere Sugar, Domino Sugar, the the breweries and that was we had a strong blue collar middle class economy going and then suddenly it all moved overseas the headquarters moved to uh suburbia and within six or seven years we had a total collapse which the city did not anticipate the city was still uh, spending tax revenues as if they were going to go on forever. And that's how the city got in deep fiscal trouble. And also we lost a million people who moved out of the city because the schools weren't good enough, because crime was high, because they were looking for uh, for other opportunities. And we lost a million people in that same decade. So there are some parallels. The, Absolutely. And those parallels extend to the dramatic shrinking of tax revenue. Some of the tax revenue completely dried up for a number of months. Uh, we, we saw estimates say as many as 500,000 people left New York City, some temporarily, but some permanently, and and a number of other issues that are similar, but, but may have taken place more rapidly than what we saw leading up to the crisis of the 70s. So where does this city stand in terms of this crisis right now, economically? We, we got a major infusion of cash thanks to the, the last round of stimulus from, from Washington, D.C., but the fiscal reality of this city right now still hasn't changed. The federal government has basically 
made a huge investment in uh, city and state government and education uh, that and and promises to to make one soon in infrastructure. So from an immediate fiscal standpoint, thank you, Senator Schumer and President Biden, we're in pretty good shape. But the, uh, the mayor came out with a budget that is is going to blow through that money and is going to hire and he's going to hire a lot more city workers. So the next mayor is going to face as much as a $12 billion deficit over a couple of years, which is, uh, which is of great concern. We should be cutting back at this point, not adding on anything that's nice, but not necessary. So that's, uh, so I am concerned about the fiscal condition moving to the economic situation. Um, the economy has done much better than anyone expected at the beginning of the pandemic. We were, they were estimating that our, we have an economy of about $891 billion in the end of 2019. It was expected we would go down 12% or so. It only ended up being, we lost about 3.3% of output in 2020. And that was concentrated, however, financial services, professional services, the information technology area, media have done very well and powered through 2020 through operating remotely. On the other hand, the brick and mortar economy, retail, accommodations, hotels, restaurants, uh, travel and tourism industries, obviously, were really hit hard. And what that meant was that low wage workers were really hit hard. That those industries represent only 9% of our economy, whereas finance and professional services are more than a third of our economy. So they're only not, it's less than 10% of our economy, but that's where the, that's what got hit hard. They're the folks that had to shut down. They had to lay off their workers, but they represent 20% of the city's workers. So it's a disproportionate share of low wage workers who were impacted. And as a result, we have lost about at this point, 578,000 jobs net at the height last summer, we were over a million jobs lost, but number of those have come back. And again, our accommodations, our restaurants, our food service industry are starting to regroup, but the digital economy has really moved ahead very quickly during the last year, probably skipped a decade in terms of a natural evolution. You know, we were, we talked about someday we're going to lose these jobs to robots, to artificial intelligence. Well, what was going to happen in 10 years or 15 years has happened in less than a year. And so we're now facing a situation where we have demand for highly educated workers. And we've got a lot of people who are out of work that do not have an education. I remember after the crisis in the 70s, one of the things that uh, the, the corporate citizens of New York did was, was bring New Yorkers together by creating these institutions that sponsored events that had us reimagine what the public space could be like in New York for everyone. I think of the Central Park Conservancy. Uh, you know, we had public arts funds. There were there was a lot going on that made New Yorkers come out and be amongst each other again and feel safe amongst each other. 
after that really severe crisis. And those institutions have done some remarkable things over the years and, and are now a permanent part of the landscape uh, of New York. Are, are they working now towards doing that again? Uh, what can you tell us you see in the crystal ball when you look at uh, you know those institutions now? What are they planning for us to get us back out and together and to feel safe again? You're absolutely right. And, and I have called that out as, as a lesson from the 70s and 80s that we have to replicate. The fact is that we do have a grassroots ground up effort in every industry and with the nonprofit sector, the cultural sector, uh, the Broadway and arts sector, every sector of our city and our communities are in fact out there and have been throughout the pandemic collaborating on figuring out what are the needs and how are we going to recover. This has been a very ground up effort. This has not come top down from city or state government. The solutions are all being developed within communities of interest, whether it's the restaurant association or the hotel association or, uh, or some of the volunteer neighborhood groups that have organized locally their food pantries and others. So we have had and we have got through the last 14 months while the state and city were focused on the health issues. We have, we have had many, many local volunteer and nonprofit and public-private partnership efforts. But what we haven't had is an overriding plan or forum that brings everybody together. Now, hopefully we're in the process of electing a new mayor who's gonna have the fresh perspective and wanna hear from everybody. And maybe that will be a convening force that will bring all these disparate parts of the city together in the same way that Governor Carey and the Financial Control Board in the in the 70s and early 80s brought every, gave everybody sort of a focal point and brought all the interests together. I think we've got a um, a lot of people who are providing leadership in every sector of our city, at the community level, in the economy, in the various business sectors. And I think the key is for us to be able to get together again on something other than Zoom and be able to, uh, to share our ideas on an interpersonal basis, which is what's so great about New York. So we got to get back together again. And I think that that's the solution. It's not waiting for a savior and it's not just the new mayor and, and other elected officials. It's, it's New Yorkers being able to cross-fertilize in person to take off their masks. And hopefully that's going to be happening over the course of the summer. And our target is to have, you know, to really be by Labor Day ready to get everything, everything going again. And particularly the interpersonal interaction of New Yorkers. Every crisis that this city has faced has left its mark and, and changed this city in some way. And everybody expects New York to recover. This is definitely not the the death knell for New York. I think we've established that in, in this New York Gritty podcast. A year from now, what's New York going to look like as this recovery is in full swing? Well, 
I think that depends on whether or not the city is facing and the state is facing a fiscal crisis. I think it depends on how wisely we use these federal dollars to leverage and invest in restoring private sector jobs, which is what we've lost, and in rebuilding our small business infrastructure on helping small businesses, and this is something that we're working on at the partnership with our companies, helping small businesses make this leap into the digital economy getting their website fixed up, getting their marketing tools, having, um, you know, being able to redesign their business models. So I think the resources that the federal government is sending to the state and the city, if we use them in really smart ways, a year from now, we will be on a path to recovery. We will have a downsized government, but we will have a much stronger economic base People will, we will have a stronger education system that is preparing people for the jobs that are available. Um, today, we have 316,000 vacant job postings in New York City. 316,000 job postings that are vacant because we don't have the people to fill them. And that's because they don't have the skills, right? That is because they don't have the skills and because of Trump's immigration policy. So we haven't been able to import the skills. And and during the COVID, obviously, there was no, uh, we weren't able to import the skills. So ideally, we will be training hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers for jobs that require, in many cases, you know, six weeks of credentialing, but we just haven't set up a program at scale to do it. So that's what I hope, where I hope we are. And I hope that's where we invest the money that we're getting from the federal government, not to expand government services, but to invest in New Yorkers, to invest in upgrading the skills of people. And then the private sector has jobs for them. We can have success and we can have an empire state of mind without turning our back on the people around us who aren't there. You know, we need a, a capitalism in a city that isn't a, you know, knockout economy where when you're down, you're out. We need a game where you can get back in. When you get knocked on your butt, you get to crawl back in and try it again. And I think that's possible. That's Thomas Dija again, author of the book, New York, New York, New York. I, I think that one needs to bring in experts. You need to find the best and the brightest because they really can deliver for the city, but you have to trust them. You have to pick the right people and you have to listen to what they say. And, and it is something that Koch did and Bloomberg did was then you lay the, you know, the political cover fire so you can get things done for the city that need to be done on a, on a nonpartisan level that are just things that have to happen but you're never going to make everybody happy all the time. So you need to be able to run that risk of sometimes making choices that aren't going to make everyone happy. Um, But you need a sense, and this is what something I think Koch did, even if he was, it's so complicated because Koch also drove an enormous divide racially in the city, but at the same time as he provided a kind of bigger than life cheerleader role of creating unity, he was disaffecting a huge number of people in the city. But we need a mayor who can unite us, who can help us 
get past the grief, not get past, but handle the grief that we have only begun to talk about. I think there's an enormous amount of trauma. We've lost tens of thousands of fellow New Yorkers, and we haven't really begun to talk about that. Um, we, this has been an enormous trauma. So I think we're going to need a mayor that isn't just, let's charge ahead. We're going to need to take a breath here and be together a little bit. And I think we need a mayor who's going to be able to talk to everyone, rich and poor and in between, to give us a rationale of why we all together are stakeholders in this city. And going forward, isn't it about punishing anybody? It's about creating something new and better. When the weather warmed in April, New Yorkers once again poured out of their tiny apartments. Pandemic fatigue was shaken off as they resumed familiar activities. Millions of people became vaccinated and the latest wave of COVID started to subside. Parks and outdoor seating at restaurants were packed. Some people strolled the streets without masks on after the CDC amended its guidance. Several onerous restrictions were lifted. The mayor ordered municipal workers to start returning to their offices on a limited basis, and he said the city would fully reopen by July 1st. There was a cautious optimism in the air, and people prepared to vote for the next mayor who will lead us out of this crisis. Keep following New York Gritty on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. When we come back with Season 2, we'll revisit with some of the folks you heard in previous episodes and talk with other New Yorkers to see how their recovery is going. Check out the website for details on the recovery and upcoming episodes, nygritty.com. You can catch up on all of Season 1's episodes as well. Want to get in touch? Send me an email, steve at nygritty.com, or find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. New York Gritty is produced in conjunction with Blue Desk Productions. Andrew Kalb is our executive producer. I'm Steve Kastenbaum. Thanks for listening.